Curious Conversations About Sex is brought to you by Curious Creatures, who run a variety of workshops on self-development and sexuality in Australia. My name is Rog. Today, I'm having a fast and exciting conversation with Fiona Patton, who leads the Australian Reason Party. You can probably smell the coffee from where you are now. We get into politics, sex, gender equality, and collaboration as an alternative to the adversarial political system. Oh, when we touch on assisted dying, drug legalisation, and a bunch of other stuff. What stands out for me about this conversation is how real it is. That wouldn't normally stand out, but it's quite an impressive quality in a politician. I found it really refreshing. There's a few things I said in this conversation that are a bit confusing, so I'm going to drop in from time to time with some clarifications, which sound like this. Now let's get started with who Fiona is. My name is Fiona Patton and I'm leader of the Reason Party, which is a national political party in Australia. And I'm currently a member of parliament in Victoria. Great. Um, and so just a, just a quick question. Reason Party used to be called the Sex Party. Mm. Um, just briefly, why the change? Look, the Sex Party was a wonderful name and I loved it, uh, but it was divisive. And, you know, so people loved what we were doing, but just thought that the name did not really portray the common sense and reasonable policies that we had. Mm. I think the other thing about the sex party, like it takes a certain person to wear a bright yellow t-shirt with the word sex emblazoned on it um, in red at seven o'clock in the morning at a train station. Yeah. to volunteer, let alone to stand up to be a candidate for the sex party. So while we were doing things on a voluntary assisted dying or abortion law reform or a whole range of really good areas, people were still just a little a little bit nervous of that word. You know, yeah. They, yeah. no yeah. one, people still say that word, say sex, in whispered tones. Hushed tones. Hushed yes, tones, yes, that's right. Yes, it's still so taboo. It's still yes. so taboo. So, yeah. you know, while it was a great way to enter into politics, it, and, you know, we, we sort of, in launching as the sex party, you know, you, that certainly takes, that certainly helps you in your promotional budget um, to, to have something like that. So it did make a splash. Sex sells, but it's controversial. That, um, that's right. So in 2016, we thought that in actual fact, we were, we were ready to um, take on a, a more, you know, oddly and ironically, a more inclusive word than sex, even though sex is pretty ubiquitous. <laughs> Um, fortunately, since it's us and we're free to talk about sex, let's stay in that world for a little bit longer. Excellent. Um, so sex doesn't go that great for a lot of people a lot of the time. So I'm not talking about the extremes no. of assault and trauma, but no. just uh, most people have concerns or questions around yeah. their sex, their sexuality. Um, what do you think is going on there and what do you think are potentially solutions? We need to talk more about it. The fact that we still, that it's still seen as a, a kind of a taboo conversation, um, which given, as we say, that it, all of us do it, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an intrinsic component of our being. 
but we are still less comfortable about talking about, uh, less comfortable about talking about it. And so I think uh, there's, and that and that's that's problematic. So people do suffer in silence or remain unsatisfied and have no way to start that conversation with their partners or even seek just a conversation with friends. Yeah, there's no training or normalisation around that. None. It's not a familiar part of much of our education. So we've had a policy that obviously we should be talking about sex and relationships from kindergarten through to year 12 and then let's look at what how we can maintain that education as we go into adult life mm. um, yeah, so, yeah so age-appropriate education starting from quite young I would say really starting from preschool and you know we've we've seen that roll out in in other jurisdictions and we we know what the evidence shows and I know I'm not I'm telling I'm not don't want to tell you how to how to suck eggs or anything but we know the evidence we know the positive outcomes that that has around respectful relationships around sexual violence but also around good and satisfying sex lives yeah yeah I think we also know the the drawbacks from not providing sex education. I mean, from my perspective, I see a lot of people in the absence of sex education, they're trying to get that information either from friends in the schoolyard who are no mm-hmm. better informed or porn or erotic literature. Yep. Um, the gods know I'm not opposed to either. but when one doesn't understand that they're not informative oh, no. education and they're just That's education, right. uh, sorry, they're just entertainment, yep. then um, yeah, we wind up in some very confusing situations when people start trying that stuff out on yeah. each other. As someone who was an advocate for the adult industry and um, and X-rated films and erotic literature and the whole gamut of erotic media... Cool, I didn't know uh, that. I am... Yes, I founded the first um, industry association for the adult industry ah. in Australia. Yeah. Uh, so obviously I'm a huge advocate of it, but not for young people. It, it's an adult product. Mm. It is developed, designed, created for adults. It's not created to provide young people with their sex education. You know, this material, media, is fantasy. It's not real. Yeah. You know, and I, and it, mm. it, it, I just lament that people are complaining that young people are, are looking at Hustler and getting, you know, quite... Um, you know, it, quite fanciful ideas about what sex is and 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 yes. and what it and what it looks like, and the only reason they're doing this that is because we're not actually telling them what sex is and what it looks like. So they are, are seeking that information because, quite rightly, they are sexually curious. Yes, and then we are surprised and shocked when they start exhibiting behaviours in older years. We, we, mm. we wring our hands and we flail our arms in the air wondering what's going wrong That's with fine. people. Um, yeah, I, I worry that because it doesn't, to me, seem like um, sex education in schools is changing all that quickly, I worry that we're still going to be looking at at least a couple of generations of bad sexual behaviour. Uh, I, you know, I, I sometimes, because I, I look at, you know, I used to, I used to host Sexpo and I'd be... And I always had, I had a stand at Sexpo. I went to 
more sex expos than anyone um, that I know. <laughs> I've been to about two and it's as much sensory input as I can cope Yes, with, I did. I probably did about 30. Um, and and even just saying that, I, you know, a little bit of six coming up in my video <laughs> and I start, I'm starting to get kind of anxious that I'm going to be back in that over-sensory um, warehouse that is Sexpo. Let's just go and segue for a second and just say, my God, what that space does to your nervous system. It's like the opposite of what should be happening in sex. It's just mm. such a goddamn onslaught. It is, relentless, it is relentless. Relentless. And extreme. And extreme. Okay. I don't dislike Sexpo. Actually, I think it's a great thing, and I think it's great that it happens on the scale it does. It's all part of the sex-positive movement, and I think that's good for the world. But for me personally, I struggle with loud and busy environments like that. It's just a sensory overload kind of a thing, um, but a lot of people get good things out of it, so I'm in support. Let's get back to it. But, you know, I used to see young people coming to it and, you know, we'd get lots of couples, like it was really, you know, it was very often, it was the girlfriend bringing her boyfriend along. And I can tell you the boyfriend came willingly, but it was it was really wonderful to see that. And, you know, I kind of thought I was seeing a, a, a generation of, of young, young men raised by feminists. Um, but... Still, those feminists don't have the language to talk about sex to their to to their young to their sons or or even to their daughters, and so I think you're absolutely right. We still haven't. While we've got these young men who understand equality, who who understand and respect women, um, who understand consent, they're not that that is not being reaffirmed, and it's not being reaffirmed through our education, and it is. Yeah, you are absolutely right. If we do not change this, we are going to have another generation who is still going to be struggling with this. I just want to make a kind of a segue or a, just a point. Some years ago, I was in a at a conference um, and I met a German researcher and he was looking at the um, consumption of adult material uh, amongst young men and he was doing a comparison between Germany and the UK. The the UK young young people, so under the age of eighteen, yeah. their consumption of adult material, and this was years ago. This was sort of before the internet was quite as ubiquitous as it is today. Before probably even before smartphones, and he found that there was a big difference. Uh, German boys were not accessing porn, mm -hmm. even though it was probably more readily available. Mm. Uh, they were not accessing it. Why not? Education. Huh. Mm. So Germany mm. actually has some quite good, it, I'm sure it could be better, mm. but it has some quite good education mm. um, in for people at a young age in their primary schools, in their early, in their, in, in during puberty, but pre-puberty. And um, even if people, if young people have still got access to a lot of porn, at least if they've had a grounding, in sex education, um, they know how to interpret what they're that's seeing right. and can understand the difference between make-believe fantasy porn that's made for small screens and on, on budgets or whatever, yeah. um, compared to stuff that they might actually want to try recreating in their own life. Yeah, yeah. that's right, yeah. that's right. And you know, now look at Australia, we don't have enough time to go into the censorship um, laws of Australia, but, but we have always censored sex. It, um, in a way that we've never censored violence. Mm. So we have always 
said that murdering someone um, on television is quite acceptable. Yes. Kissing someone's nipple yes. on television yes. Yes. is completely unacceptable. It, Raping someone yes. is okay. It's totally Having consenting yep. sex is not okay. It is incredible. It's yeah. incredible. I'm um, For the listener at home, I'm just like gently stroking my arm for a second. It is incredible that you can't even portray that on TV, mm. but you can slice someone open with a knife and show their... Exactly. Yeah. Ah. You know, ah. I used to I used to send out, you know, this was, <laughs> sorry listeners, this is going back to the days of video, which I know some of you don't even know what that means, um, but I would sometimes, I would post, yes, another thing, I would mail um, a, a cover of a video um, of a, it was an X-rated film, uh, it was a couple's film, uh, it was probably looks very twee now, but it was a beautiful film. And I would put alongside that um, Chainsaw Massacre. And I would send those two slicks and I would say, this one is legal, this one is not. And you've got the most grotesque violence, misogyny in the Chainsaw Massacre. Mm. And yet that was, no one's ever questioned whether Mm. that should have been legal. So I think that that also, you know, goes to to our attitudes around around sex in Australia. Yeah, yeah. Just um, super quickly, if I was to uh, wander out the world and try and get more sex education, let's just limit it to Australia. Who are my opposition groups at the moment? Like who's standing in the way of more sex education in Australia? Just briefly. Uh, The Australian Christian Lobby. Yeah. Uh, Most religious institutions are still opposed to sex education. Yep. Somehow they think it's going to lead to dancing in the streets and yep. you know yep. scaring the, the horses. And... But it, it is still large. The opposition is still largely religious. Mm, okay. Yep. Uh, and you and then so those conservative political parties um, and and those conservatives within political parties uh, rail rail against further sex education. Rail against even saying the word sex. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, great. Um, you mentioned a little earlier around gender. Um, so in the span of my life, uh, I'm aware of, uh, let's say, a gender movement that mostly started in the 60s and the 70s. Mm. How do you think that's going for us? And what do you think is uh, needed to happen next? Um, again, you know, when we have looked in the last couple of years when we've been passing legislation, whether you know that's about around in inclusivity and a rec- and recognizing sometimes the fluidity of gender and certainly the fluidity of sexuality uh, again those conservative i would say 90 percent religious sometimes you've got you've also got some obviously we've got some you know sort of people who have real issues around trans and uh, a, a, as well, but largely they get into bed with conservative, religious conservatives on this issue um, and they rail against it. But I tell you, out there in the community, no one cares. Mm. Like, they mm. do not care. Mm. You know, we had a terrible um, politician the other day saying, I refuse to use the, ter- the pronoun they, I, mm. I, will own, I will call them it. Yeah. And I just thought, what sort of person says that? You know, so look, mm. I, I, I think for the most part we are on a good, we are in a good place and I think most people are really respectful of people's decisions and, and respecting people for who they are, mm. regardless of what their genitals look like. Mm. You, know, I, you know, I've 
I've never understood why we, we even have to say our sex on identification forms. It's like it, you are never going to look at any part of me except for my face and you've probably got eye identification now. So it, that doesn't matter if I'm you know, Susan or Sam or somewhere in between. It's amazing how far we are from achieving that very simple early goal of being judged by who we are rather mm -hmm. than by our gender. We're still a long way from that one. Yeah. Um, what do you think about, so staying on like gender and equality and politics, mm. um, so much bad behaviour comes from AMABs or from men. Yeah. Um, what do you think about, is behind that? Uh, what do you think is the cause? What do you think is the solution? Yeah. I sometimes look at, um, you know, there's a real old boys club and, and so that breeds this sameness, you know, and then it also, to stay in that club, one doesn't want to, you know, step outside the guidelines and step outside the, um, the road of, of those groups. So there is this, the same, that old boys club does breed that sameness. And, you know, we see this when, you know, we see this in corporations, uh, which are still remarkably still managed largely by men. Um, our parliaments are changing for the better, and, but it's very one-sided. And we've seen the Labor Party really move to uh, gender parity, and they have been successful. You know, my, my chamber, uh, in the upper house or in the last term was almost 50-50 male-female. Male um, uh, but that was because there's a lot of women in the Labor Party uh, seats. There was a number of women on the crossbench. There was very few women in the Liberal Party, sadly. And that's still the case. Um, and in the upcoming election, a number of the women who are being um, pre-selected are coming from an anti-abortion, very deeply conservative evangelical Christian background. So we are not seeing those moderate women that we want to see um, coming into Parliament. And that does, that affects the way Parliament behaves. It maintains those old um, uh, combative, combative uh, stereotypes and you know and ways that we we act and perform in Parliament where it's not what the community wants the community wants you to represent your community mm. it doesn't want you just to disagree with someone because of the color of their t-shirt um, and women sadly and I know it's a kind of a sexist thing but you know I think many women actually understand that better and have had to work in a collaborative way to get all their lives and understand understand how that works and some of the dinosaurs in there just don't get it and see this sort of oppositional and combative behavior as traditional and what it should be when it's not what achieves the best thing for our community yeah yeah it's an interesting question of how to get men out of their positions of dominance in, uh, you've been talking about the political mm. arena, but most I, arenas. That's right. uh, fascinating question of where they go and how we pave the way and socialise them more in favour of family and community roles and the roles that women yeah. tend to play. 
Um, fascinating conundrum that I don't have solutions to. I, I, I know uh, um, equal equal paternity leave is like a great start in yeah. that direction. I'm guessing you're a yay for yes, absolute yeah. yay for that. <laughs> yeah, so to, to at least get men grounded in that family yeah. dynamic from an early stage, yeah. but tricky uh, one to change. It's a tricky one, and and it, it, you're absolutely right. Like when we have more teachers that are women, are men. Yes. When we have yes. more nurses. Yes. That that are that are men. When we have more carers, yes, that are, that are that are identifying as men, um, then that is the type of parity that we want. Certainly, we want more yes. women CEOs. Yes, we do. But we want more male nurses. We want more male. We want yes. more males in that caring industry. And part of it is that um, when. It seems like, I don't know, I'm talking out of my schoolhouse now, I haven't done enough research to really stand by this, but it seems like boys that grow up without fathers seem to have uh, worse outcomes um, by a long margin. Mm -hmm. And if the father is working away from home and there's no other male role models around, I mean, I wish it wasn't the case. I wish it wasn't so gender aligned. I personally am fluid, um, but I understand that boys look to men and girls look to women. Um, so in the absence of having male role models around, then boys look to whatever's available, which is mm. mostly really bad movie roles. And again, we're back to violence. Yeah. Most of their yeah. male role models are people yeah. with guns and knives yeah. who have been glorified yeah. for it. And then again, we wonder why we've got bad male behaviour. Oh wow, if you tilt your head the wrong way, this sounds like I'm against any parenting situation that doesn't have male role models directly involved, like single mum families, lesbian families, etc. Uh, that's definitely not my position, to be clear. I was talking here about the need for male role models in kids' worlds more generally. Uh, I love the way Fiona goes on and talks about the importance of having male nurses, teachers, carers, and the like. Yeah, or we're expecting young 22-year-old footballers to be role models. Yes. When their brains are still developing, they're going to go and do dumb things, and yeah. all of a sudden they're getting paid a lot of money to do something that they obviously yeah. love. And money doesn't make you nice. And money doesn't make you nice. And 22-year-old kids are going to make mistakes, are going to be dickheads, and we we put them up on these pedestals and then and as you say you've got boys having only those role models and that's obviously that's changing and we are seeing some really great behavioral change in in our sports areas and and i think the rise of women's football and women's cricket and and those sorts of things and i see it in my local football clubs that you know the the great the great respect that that we and that we can that we can foster um, at that at that community level. But you you are absolutely right, and it's it's about valuing our teachers. And I think you know I don't mm. think it'll come as any surprise to to anyone that when you look at those Scandinavian countries, there are more there is greater gender diversity in their education systems and in their health systems. Um, but they also Surprise. pay their teachers remarkably well because right. they recognise that they have the one of the most important jobs and that is to guide our children and assist our children with their brain development, with their learning, to become, mm. you know, wonderful, um, wonderful citizens. And, you know, it, it's, it's such an honourable profession and that we don't give it the due respect um, and 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 due remuneration that it deserves. 
Yeah, makes sense. Um, and gosh, what a surprise, surprise that, um, yeah, those example countries are doing it differently. Yes. Um, you mentioned uh, before around um, the competitive nature of politics. Mm. Um, yeah, I really wanted to ask about that. So we exist in Australia in an adversarial system and likewise our legal system where essentially um, there's two sides yes. and one side's job is to disagree with the other yeah. pretty much no matter what. Yeah. Um, as a collaborator myself, I think it's the worst possible mm. um, uh, way of having a conversation, let alone resolving a, yeah. a, a, a problem, yeah. uh, a conflict. Um, do you think that there's a bit of a trickle down in that um, a lot of people's idea of relationships and relationship conflict is much the same. One person mm. raises an issue, the other one goes competitively into yeah. a defensive mode and that's about as far as a lot of conflicts yeah. goes. Do you think there's a bit of a trickle down there? Like, do you think a lot of us subconsciously take politics as our role model for how oh. relationships and communication is meant to work? Jesus, I bloody well hope not. Um, my goodness. <laughs> you know, some of the worst behaviour happens amongst our public political figures. Uh, it is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. It is absolutely ridiculous. And if you look at my at the upper house this term, um, there was more people sitting on the crossbench than there were sitting in opposition. So, you know, even the structure of the chamber had changed, you know. Huh. But there was some, many of my colleagues on the crossbench felt like it was their job to be adversarial with the government, that they were there to oppose the government and they were there um, to do this. And you know, I've never seen it. Like you, I'm a collaborator. And I could, I could you know, like it's always, can't we have both? Um, or, okay, you want that, you want that. How about here, here's a middle position. And, and that's how I have always worked, you know, and, and, um, and I think, you know, not to blow my own trumpet, uh, that is actually how I've managed to to actually um, navigate successes and successful outcomes in a range of issues that you know many probably thought were pretty hard and impossible to achieve. So I, I think we're moving away from that. We're, we're certainly in politics seeing um, the more and more independence coming in to Parliament. Uh, we're, I, we're starting to see that, that governments of the day are going to have to operate collaboratively. And if you look in Europe, if most, most of those nations, and particularly Scandinavian, Scandinavian nations, there's never been one true leading party. It will rarely, it's always been um, collectives of parties that, that form government. So that, that, that is really healthy. So it forces, it creates a culture where you have to collaborate and you have to accept that there's different viewpoints. That's right. And, um, that's right. And find that common path. Mm. And, you know, that, and to me, that's when the community gets the best outcomes. So I think going back to your question, I hope that nobody looks at politics as, as, um, as a role model. However, we, we have always structured, you know, we have been very binary in everything in everything yeah. yeah and I think you know we've got to accept that the gray in between and and the gray in between is probably where the solution lies and it's certainly where the mag the magic happens is is in that that middle ground and you know for me as someone who's a real centrist politically um, 
I, I think that is where we can find harmony, where, you know, in, unfortunately, you've got these extremists, um, sometimes on both sides, and that, and it's very hard to turn them, but for the rest of us, we sit in the middle. Hey there, listener. I'd like to make you a little proposal. I love making this podcast for free because it helps me spread the word about sex positivity. But I could use your help in spreading the word just by sharing this episode if that's not too absurd. For every 10 stories that you listen to, please recommend it to someone that might like it too. This is not a real contract, for you got no say. I would if I could frame it some other way. And if sharing's not for you, that's fine. There's nothing to do. Please listen without guilt to this podcast I built. So centrists or moderates are sometimes described as people who don't have the courage to take a position and just Mm. want to try and please the most people most of the time. Then there's centrists who uh, can straddle both camps as required and communicate with both sides. I'm just going to take a guess here and Mm. assume that you're identifying Mm. as a latter. I am. I am. And and I think, you know, as I mentioned, you know, I I started my, I guess I started my political career. It wasn't really with the idea of going into politics, but I might, you know, I started visiting politicians and working the working the corridors of parliaments um, as a lobbyist so you know mm. it, it didn't matter what color the MP was mm. it mattered that they understood the arguments they understood the evidence um, yeah. and that they that that they that we could try and add that they would assist us in advocating for change so I you know, I've worked with some really tremendous um, Liberal Party MPs. I've worked with some great Labor ones, Greens, Democrats, Independents, and so we were quite colourblind to to that. Mm. And I've, I think I've, you know, that's that's actually um, boded well for me in Parliament that I'm still kind of colourblind. I, right. I, I know the government of the day has the checkbook, so I, you know, I to get things done, you need the support of the government. Um, but to me, that that's just the government, and I don't care what you know, regardless of what colour they are. That I, you know, as an independent, I will need the support of the government to affect change, um, and I recognise that. But yeah, it's mm. about playing well with others. Yeah, yeah. Um, you strike me like like correct me well correct me if I'm wrong, but you strike me as a person that likes the idea of leaving the earth slightly better than mm. you found it. Mm. Um, so under different circumstances, you might be more of an outright activist, and I'm mm. sure there's been plenty of activi- activism in the past. Um, how do you find that sits with being a politician in this very oh. mainstream, structured That's system? right. Look, I've, um, I, don't, <laughs> I don't think I've necessarily changed the way I do things, and I think I've, you know, I've managed to to I think I still can be an activist and you know I never ever thought that I would go into politics like I always looked at politicians and I looked at my friends who went into politics and I was just like oh shit like sell your soul at the door my darling um but as I think as someone who then set up their own party and then went into politics mm. that way 
we forged our own path and we forged our our way of doing things and so that means I think I have been able to remain an activist. You know, I have been able to stand up on drug law reform, mm. sex work law reform, yeah. on, you know, sexual health. And, yes. and I have been able to, to talk about those issues as an activist on the inside. Um, I would invite the listener to uh, even to spend a couple of minutes doing a little research on um, what Fiona's achieved. Um, there are some radical issues and some yes. radical successes yes. that, um, yeah... Um, um, give yeah. one a little bit of hope. Well, yeah, I reflect back when I when when I was elected in the most you know, and it was so unlikely that this former sex worker running for the sex par- running the sex party would yep. win a seat in the Victorian Parliament. Yeah, no, I got agreed. Didn't see that one coming. No, no one did. No one did, my friend. No one did. But when I did, and the media was just like stormed around me and said, you know. Well, what's the first thing you're going to do? Mm. Um, and I said, the first thing I'm going to do is get a move on on voluntary assisted dying. Mm. Now, mm. I think this disappointed a lot of people. I thought they were, they thought I was going to say something far more salacious yeah. than that. Yeah. Um, make yeah. sex compulsory in all households, <laughs> or you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. make Parliament nude. Oh, guys, the same as when we talk about sex positivity. Um, people who are not familiar with that language often assume that we mean that old people should be having sex all the time, that, or that you should say yes to all sex. Yeah. Ludicrous. Exactly. Anyway. Exactly. But that. And, of course, they immediately went to the Premier and mm. said, well, this is what Miss Patton is suggesting. And he said, well, that will never happen under my watch. Mm. So that was in 2014. Wow. And in 2000... Here we are with the And here we are. And not only are we was Victoria the first state to, to legalise voluntary assisted dying, every state in Australia has followed suit. Um, Incredible. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you, so... Yeah, obviously we don't take, I don't, you know, consenting adults, of course, and I, you know, I make a rule not to kiss babies, only consenting adults when I'm on the campaign trail. Um, But it's, in politics, I rarely take no for an answer. Mm. You know, I take, I'll get them to maybe, (laughs) and then we'll get them to yes. Mm. So, but I do not take no. the opposite of... That's right, exactly, exactly, exactly. (laughs) so, so in that adversarial model, um, part of it, it's not just about, um, it might be okay if it was just a enthusiastic uh, pulling apart of ideas and logic, but it's not. It's mm. personal attack and vitriol and, yeah. and hatred. And one of the tools in that arsenal is sex shaming and slut shaming. So anytime there's an opportunity to rip someone apart because of their alleged sexual behavior or their actual sex, sex yeah. behavior, then we do that. Um, you'd be a right candidate for that, and yet there's none of it that I've noticed how do you manage to miss it or have I just missed that it's you, you've missed some I've of missed yeah it. you okay. have actually missed some okay. of that <laughs> right um oh I'm sorry during COVID it was uh awful oh. uh, it was really awful and um and it was really interesting to see the gendered attack mm. and to see uh how my colleagues who were men were not getting the same attack as I was as a female mm. and it was that very sexualized attack mm. um and that, and that still goes on on social media you know but there was a lot of you know really 
um, offensive, uh, uh, yeah, se- mm. sexual attacks and sexual, you know, uh, threats of sexual violence and those oh. sorts of things. So it was awful. However, on the most part, like, you know, I I can I can I it's it's hard like what you're gonna yeah. accuse me of being a sex worker like yeah. Uh, yeah yeah said it in my maiden speech like I I don't I try not to have I don't have skeletons in my closet and that that makes it harder to attack where I think for my conservative colleagues sometimes they're afraid of what people might find about them. Um, that people might find right, yes, you know, a- around yes. who they are as P- people. Pointing the finger at other people uh, by way of accusations must be very tenuous and scary because we're all humans. That's right, and um, yeah. we're also hypocrites right. most of the time. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm um, cool. My my yeah. My hope was that because you lead with sexuality and sex related things so strongly, that that would be enough to short circuit yeah. that whole mechanism I'm sorry I, I, I've yeah. missed those experiences Look, speak of it I'm, for, I'm sorry for what you go yeah, through yeah no thank you for, for the most part it is and for the most part because it doesn't hurt me <laughs> you know? yeah. it, 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 so it's not it's not a tool it's not a weapon for that's a, it's not an effective weapon for yeah. my opponents yeah but during COVID yeah. and certainly during lockdown we saw yeah. that and that and that yeah. and that has continued and that that yeah. the, the, those attacks it's, really it's just, did go that way it's just rife it's such a part of that culture yeah I, yeah it's it, it's frustrating but I you know and in fact I've actually introduced a bill that hopefully might if I'm if I'm successful next if I'm successful at this election mm. that next term we'll see the fruition of it but it was looking at that anti at, at anti vilification legislation so vilification is when you say something that that really is not offensive but actually could incite violence. Um, I feel like I chat, could chat with you about these things okay. forever. <laughs> should prob- I should probably be uh, mindful of time. Maybe let's just finish with um, what was uh, what's what nudged you around uh, drug decriminalisation and what nudged you around assisted dying. Yeah. So the second one first. So assisted dying. Uh, yeah, I am not one of those people who has an experience of a family member having a terrible death. Uh-huh. And that's for many people mm. who get active. Because that's, that's what motivates most people. That's what motivates yeah. people. The real lived experience of just going, this I, is awful. I made a promise to a dying man. Now, I'm an atheist. And, um, <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, no, yeah. The way you were talking about religion yeah. before. No, I was no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an atheist. But when I made that commitment... Um, I really it 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 really weighed on me, mm. and and he made me Peter made me um, uh, Peter Short made me commit that it would be one of the first things I did if I got elected, and mm. he was very persuasive, and I said mm. I agree with you, and I've always believed in that right to die, that right to to choose, and that you know that that right to adult autonomy. Mm. So I've always supported that. And in my work as a sex activist, it has been about adults' rights to choose what they do with their lives. And so what they do with their deaths is part of that as well. So that was what motivated me there. Mm. And, and, that's, and then the more I got involved in it, just the more passionate I became. Mm. Then around drug law reform, well, you know, I'm someone who's used drugs. 
uh, and uses know. drugs. Uh, I'm also someone who was uh, a volunteer at the AIDS Council in the 1990s. Mm. I was one of those people that was handing out needle needles and syringes. Mm. Um, uh, someone who understood the harm minimization principles and harm reduction principles. So that started me on that path. One yep. has a different perspective on drugs and addiction and harm minimization and drug law when one is in at that hands-on grassroots level yep. than when one is just looking at things on a policy and maybe more of a belief yep. kind yep. of a system. But now when I, you know, but also now with the, with the amazing education, like the, you know, um, master's education that, that being in parliament gives you, that you, because I've been involved in so many committees, so many inquiries, like, you learn so much. You know, 15% of the magistrate court's time is dealing with people who possess drugs. Not people who sell drugs, not people who make drugs, grow them, people who possess them or use them. 15% of our magistrate's courts. And we know that the minute you brush against our justice system, that that is criminogenic, that that increases your chances exponentially of brushing against it again. Yeah, to, to, to come back to a theme we've been touching on several times of how are we going to stop bad patterns of behaviour going forwards. Um, yeah. Um, right. Criminalising people does not with, do it. With the criminal system just over something like that right. is making sure that we're creating yeah. more people with very violent yeah. tendencies and violent futures. Yeah. And I think cannabis in particular, when you look at what's happening around the world with cannabis and really, you know, and it's... it's um, it's quite a renaissance for for that um, for that plant, yes. And in and it and it done well. It's a good renaissance, yes. Uh, and some an interesting renaissance for MDMA as it relates to yes. PTSD and psilocybin oh, as it relates yep. to alcoholism and a whole bunch of other yep. things. It's yep. interesting times. It's it's fantastic, and you know we've really and what we've got to do is try and try and reduce those barriers. And I've been trying to do that. Um, certainly around some of the well I was I've been successful in actually getting some fun, getting funding for some of those MDMA and psilocybin trials that we've been doing thank you in Victoria and they are proving to be so successful the early data is looking great oh, so great you know <laughs> just so yeah. fantastic yeah. and then you know around cannabis and particularly around medicinal cannabis again yes. you know we're only just starting to talk about the endocannabinoid systems in our... Anyway, I could talk about this all day, but I also think, again, this is around adults being adults and us being able to make those decisions for ourselves. Do you want a glass of wine to relax, to kind of switch off for the day, knock yourself out, I love a glass of wine? Or would you prefer to sit there you know, and vape some THC or, you know, um, smoke a joint or have a you know have an edible to to chill you out or um to give you a nice psychoactive experience and we as humans our brains have got endocannabinoid receptors all over them cannabinoid receptors our, our body searches for that and why are we denying it well that's as good a spot as any to end on um, is there anything from our discussion that in retrospect you want to clarify or add to? No, I've really enjoyed it. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. And, and obviously, you know, it's, it's, this, it's this conversation that, that 
we need to be having and people need to be um, more vocal about it and get involved and that that's how we make change happen. I agree. Um, thank you so much for what you're doing in the exactly. world and thank you for the difficulty of, um, it's one thing to have the beliefs and values that you have, it's another thing to um, I'm going to say pluck up the courage and do that within our mainstream political system. That's like a whole extra layer <laughs> of hard. Uh, so I want to say thank you for that. It's a pleasure sharing the planet with you. Thank you. Thank you, likewise. I'd love to hear what you thought about today's episode. I've created a forum so you can tell me and also chat with other listeners about it. It's at forum.curiouscreatures.biz. And there's a link for that in the show notes. Once you've signed up to the forum, which is free and takes less than a minute, navigate to groups and then join the group for curious conversations about sex. And if you liked today's episode, please share it with someone else that might be interested. There's probably a share button right there in your podcast player. Curious Creatures run a variety of workshops, mostly in Melbourne, Australia. We've also got some pre-recorded workshops that you can watch anytime anywhere. Our workshops are on sexuality, self-development and relationships. You might also want to check out our consent cards. They're a small plastic card with all of the questions you need to ask to give yourself the best chance of getting exactly what you want to the level you want it. There's a version specifically for kink activities and a more general version for everything else. Links to our consent cards are in the show notes. See you soon, friends.